just want to thank you for Stacey. And I want to thank you, Father, for what you've done in her own heart. And just pray for your spirit to come on her now. And let your spirit come on us, that we would be hungry and open to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, sorry, so I'm going to sit um, because it gives me half less of a body to worry about. Um, Alright, so, Tēnā koutou katoa, i ngā tangata o te hahi, no mai haere mai. I ngā manuhiri, no mai, no mai, no mai haere mai. I ngā whaio o ihirama, assalamu alaikum. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. So, welcome everybody. To those from this church, Welcome. And to those of you who are visitors, you're so very welcome. Uh, and to the followers of Islam, I just want to say peace be with you. All right, so kia ora For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stacey. I am the wife of Sam, who was up here leading worship a minute ago. I am mum to Izzy, who's my very full of life three-year-old. And Ellie May, my very cheeky one-year-old. I'm a nurse by profession. I work in the community with patients with um, infectious diseases and their contacts, and I'm really passionate about the work that I do. In the bit of free time that I have, I love renovating our little house, and I love planning parties and decorating cakes, and I get so much enjoyment out of that. Um, I think it's a way that I can honour someone and show them their value. Ultimately, my passion is that I love people, and I long for all people to feel respected and loved. Now, I'm aware that I'm speaking today on the back of a really devastating time, and I want to acknowledge that before we start. I've been feeling really heavy-hearted since hearing the news on Friday, um, and I've been tearful on and off as I have considered sort of the pain that's being felt by so many people. I've also, um, I think I've also grieved for our country, really, it's that our place could be a place of something so hateful. And I know there are reasons why we were targeted, and it's a credit to us but it's still something to be grieved. This morning I'm speaking on the love of God that he has for all people and therefore the love that we should have for all people. A love that breaks down racial, cultural, social barriers. And what I want to share now feels so insignificant given the backdrop of Friday. But I just pray this morning that what I share can touch your heart, that God can use it now in this time when people need to be shown inclusivity and love. Um, and that God can use it later in the context that I had intended to speak into prior to Friday. So given that we're in the preparation time for Tomokanga, which as Phil said is basically a time where as a church we're being intentional about opening the doors of our whare and um, connecting with and welcoming in uh, the community that God has placed us in. So it seemed like the right opportunity and space for me to be able to share something of my heart and my passion. But I just want to start by saying I'm not at all qualified uh, to be here. My actions do not yet match what God's put on my heart. So today I humbly, and I really want to emphasise humbly, come before you to share my heart, uh, which I think might reflect something of God's, um, and I hope can encourage you and resonate with your hearts too. So many of us have heard before about loving the one, which is simply a phrase used in Christian circles to help us realise that loving our communities doesn't have to be overwhelming, it simply starts with the person situated right in front of you. And that can look different for everybody depending on your circumstances, your surroundings, what you're exposed to in daily life. So the ones that I have the opportunity to love in front of me will be different from those, for example, who Phil has the opportunity to love working in a church context, living in Porirua. 
And that would be different again from someone like Becca, who has the opportunity to love caring for her children and schools and, and kindies and daytime activities. Often in our lives we find ourselves surrounded by people who are like-minded, who are easy for us to connect with, who we have a common factor with. They might have you know, the same age children or study the same subject, which is wonderful and we trust God and um, thank him for that and we believe he's put us in those places to be of influence and to reflect something of God in those places. However, on the, the other side of that concept, I find it quite convicting to question yeah, and identify really, who are those that are perhaps more difficult for you to love? Who are outside of your natural inclination to consider? I think they'll likely be the ones in front of you too, uh, but perhaps they're just not the focus of your lens. For me, um, some work in Cambodia was, as cheesy as it sounds, one of my favourite places in the world. Um, and I often think it's a shame that I'm not in that place, that you know I could love on them so easily all the time. But I mean, even here I find, you know, anyone who's got a need, anyone um, of my patients, my heart for them is just so big. On the other hand, I can find it so, so hard to love people who I perceive to be overconfident or loud or opinionated. And it can feel like those people are everywhere. <laughs> and I can, I can just justify to myself why I don't need to love them. So for me, as easy and as simple as it sounds to love the one in front of me, it can actually be a really daily challenge. So sometimes too, I wonder, what does it actually mean in practice to love the person in front of you? Especially perhaps those who are a little more difficult for us to love. What does it mean practically to, in the way that I live out my life, to love that person in front, to love my community, to love my country? What does that look like? Now, I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I'm aware that I can feel quite confined or I can feel quite boxed in, uh, perhaps by worldview or rules or uh, expectations or fears, and it actually prevents me from loving somebody the way that I want to or the way that God has put on my heart to. And this is the concept, really, that I kind of want to explore with you all this morning. I want us to consider what it would mean for us to love outside the box. To love in a way that is simply led by the Holy Spirit rather than by fear. To love in a way that's extravagant and not confined by limitations that we set ourselves, that we can set for each other, or that can just be the kind of status quo of society. During this time, I want to look at two different people groups um, that Jesus loved outside of the box. He, that he loved in a way that wasn't regulated by fear or society's expectations or the religiosity of his time. Firstly, I want to consider the culturally diverse, and then secondly, the marginalised or socially rejected. Now, there are so many individuals and peoples that Jesus loved, but I selected these two as examples. As I believe as we enter Tomokanga, these groups are still right in front of us, still requiring us to get brave and to reach outside of our box and love on them. And then following this, I just want to quickly encourage us about what it might look for us to get outside of our boxes, to shake off our fears, our expectations, and to be generous, authentic, courageous, and spiritly in the way that we love. Okay, have I? So, as people know, as a church, we are in the early stages of pursuing biculturalism together, which ultimately means recognising the country that we live in and making space for that to become part of our identity as a church. Now, obviously, we love all nations, all cultures, and it's always really beautiful in our church that we have such a, a mixture of God-given gifts and worldviews, languages, colours. So the pursuit of biculturalism isn't at all to exclude, but to include. 
increasingly recognising the value um, of the people of this land who have historically and still to this day experience a disregard. This is something I wouldn't have believed I'd be saying uh, five years ago, perhaps not even one or two years ago, uh, because for most of my life to date, for whatever reason, worldview, media, being uneducated or just wrongful thinking, ashamedly Māori have been my difficult to love. But I've been on a personal journey and I've learnt that we're called to cross barriers, to close the gap, to get outside of our boxes of comfort, outside of our boxes of fear, outside our box of expectation and genuinely love across race, across culture. And for us on our doorstep, that is Māori. So fortunately Jesus is the ultimate expression of love and he has lived a life of examples that we can learn from. So, first one. I want to look at here is John 4, 4 to 9. It says, Now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now the story does continue, and the woman and Jesus have this discussion, which ultimately ends in the woman coming to the knowledge of Jesus. But there's a key concept that I want us to focus on, and that is simply that Jesus went to Samaria. The verse here actually says that he had to go. And this is interesting, and that actually Jews would normally avoid the region altogether. There had been racial tension between Jews and Samaritans for between sort of five and six hundred years, they just did not associate. There were other routes available to travel. But the verse says he had to go. One suggestion is that he didn't have to go for geographical or for travel reasons, but rather the necessity, the reason he had to go, was for his mission. Jesus had to meet the Samaritan woman. Now, this is interesting because I actually wrote this uh, pre-Friday and it's kind of uh, interesting to look back on. I've written, now fortunately I don't think racial tensions in New Zealand are that bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh, so I've changed it, I've now said, I don't think racial tensions between Māori and Pākehā are that bad, that Pākehā do not associate with Māori as the Jews didn't with the Samaritans. Or well, are tensions that bad here? I'll leave that up to you to ponder. Before Friday, I don't think any of us thought that racial tension could be so confronting here. But the truth is, there are uh, cultural and racial tensions here. We see it on the media, we see it in the news, we see it in the comments left on stuff articles, we see it in conversations with Māori and Pākehā alike. We can see it played out in our workplace and the intolerance perhaps towards cultural practices. Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody, so please don't feel that. But Jesus set the standard. He went out of his way. He sacrificed his time, his energy. He ignored the societal expectations. He ignored the likely judgment of others. And he had to love this woman. So for me, my story until recently is one of intolerance, really, towards anything Māori. I loved people, but the people of this land were my difficult to love. And on reflection, that was actually rooted in my own worldview and my own insecurity. So I grew up in Whitby, nearby here, all my life until I was 22. I was raised in a Catholic family, I attended church every Sunday, I went to Catholic schools, I wasn't in need of anything. It's what I would describe as a very white middle class upbringing. 
Recently, uh, my mum told me it wasn't until I was partway through primary school that I met for the first time someone of a different skin colour. Although growing up I call myself a Christian, on reflection I didn't have any kind of relationship with God, um, but I just followed what the example was that I was seeing. In saying that, I did always have a slightly deeper level of intrigue. I remember as a child, um, I was old enough to read. I remember hiding in my wardrobe to read, the bi- read this little children's Bible because I was a bit embarrassed. But later in my life, um, in my teenage years, it was a little bit more difficult. And when I was 18, I prayed out to God and I asked for help. And it sounds really cliche, but in the following days, I met a dreadlocked, hold nothing back for Jesus, the most <laughs> radical Christian I'd ever met, who was him. <laughs> And throughout the following year, I started my nursing training. I gave my life to God, and I was exposed more and more to Christianity, where you love God. And I was seeing these new examples of God-like families and God-centered marriages and compassion on a whole new level. About four and a half years later, I married that crazy Christian, and together we shared a passion for the nations and for overseas mission. Working in third world countries was one of the first conversations we ever had together. After about two years of being married, we moved to Cambodia to serve there for six months in Phnom Penh, uh, working with a local church. And I also worked in a nursing clinic providing free medical care to um, prostitutes, ladyboys and their families. Sam and I spent most Fridays in a slum alongside the train track in the centre of Phnom Penh. And it was one of the most confronting yet beautiful places I've ever been. And I felt so myself in that space. Interestingly, the weekend before we left for Cambodia, we visited Sam's marae, so he has Māori heritage, but it wasn't something he'd ever really identified with. But we were kind of hopeful that at this weekend, it was something, um, it's something he could you know, begin to connect with. Actually, that experience was the complete opposite for him, and he came away quite sure that it was something he never wanted anything to do with. <laughs> in Cambodia, however, we were aware that God was growing in us a sense of awareness and responsibility for New Zealand. That New Zealand too, although our home, it still has needs, it still needs God, and it still requires a sense of mission. After our return home, we got back into work, we started our family, and the normality of life settled in. However, Sam felt a desire to start connecting with Māori, and so over the course of about a year, he started building relationships with local Marae, with his own iwi, and just reading, educating himself in the history of Aotearoa and understanding the concept of worldview. All the while I was quite happy for Sam to do this, but it was absolutely not my interest. We decided um, in 2017 that Sam should start some full-time university study, and as such started studying history, te reo Māori, and anthropology, which is the study of cultures. And he was bubbling and energised with his learnings alongside what he felt God was revealing to him about it all. And to be honest, I was tolerant, uh, but sometimes I would tear him down and kind of bring him back to reality. Um, and this has just been in the last year or two. So for those of you who can come here to kind of like boost what Sam's into, and um, for those of you who are maybe sick of hearing this stuff, know that I've been your advocate behind closed doors. <laughs> I can't identify exactly when my heart started to change and to soften, but to be honest, I think it was a combination of things. It was taking the time to learn, recognising more and more God's love for all people, having experiences and connecting with real people. But I think mostly it was just God highlighting spaces in my life and transforming my heart and my mind. Throughout the last 18 months, I've slowly recognised that the problem, or my problem, was not Māori. 
In fact, I now know some incredible Māori people. They're warm, they're welcoming, they're generous. The problem is not Māori, I can assure you. But rather the insecurity, the pride, the lack of understanding and the fear in my own heart. I felt a huge jumble of things. On one hand, I recognised a sense of pride that I had to put aside. Recognising that I'd grown in this land all my life and I knew nothing of our history. I know nothing of Māori tikanga, of Māori pain. Well, on the other hand, I've often felt and still do feel in some spaces shameful about my privileged upbringing, wanting to say I'm from Porirua, not from Whitby, as if somehow that makes me more relatable. I've recognised that I'm insecure and as a result, I fear the idea of building up others. Now, I'm realising more and more that this bicultural journey is hugely a journey of the heart, of receiving God's love for me, understanding his love for all people, including Māori. And can I just say on a side note, because I know it can be a bit of a stumbling block for some, that as biculturalism is a journey of the heart, it becomes about so much more than just the end result of Māori-Pākehā relationship or equality. It's a journey that will result in multiculturalism along the way. Biculturalism, I believe, makes space for all cultures to feel valued. As we intentionally make space for Māori, the people who have been suppressed by the Western way of doing life, in church, then we're recognising that there's not one Western way of doing things, of being a Christian, so it gives everybody freedom and permission to be themselves. Simply this bicultural journey is one of learning to love, learning to love the ones right in front of me. So going back to the Samaritan woman at the well, this verse shows Jesus breaking down many barriers, gender barriers, religious differences, and what we've been focusing on, racial tensions. But regardless of which reason you choose to focus on, his purpose was the same. It was to see individuals and people groups come to the knowledge of Jesus and be saved. Later in the chapter, it says that many, many Samaritans believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Throughout these verses, Jesus also takes a moment to instruct his disciples that the harvest is ready, that people are ready, and there's a sense of urgency. Jesus sets the standard, he gives us this example, and we are to follow. Now, we see multiple examples of this closing the gap throughout the Bible between Jesus and the rejected or the needy, and we see it all throughout his life and the life of his followers. We see Jesus loving those with needs, with physical needs, with spiritual needs, loving those who we can find so difficult to love. We like people to be capable and independent and not intrusive on our lives or our time or our money. But in Matthew 15, Jesus feeds the hungry. In Matthew 8, he casts out demons, which is arguably meeting a spiritual, emotional, and a physical need. And in Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Now, I experience this in my work quite a bit. Not so much the casting out demons, but, but people with needs. And I love my job, and I love the people that I serve. But sometimes their needs are so needy and repetitive, you know, like... I'm in isolation, how do I get my groceries, or my visa application's coming up, how is TV going to affect this, can you help me with the documentation? Now, for those people, and probably to you, they sound quite reasonable needs, and as I wrote them down, I too thought, actually, they're quite reasonable, but as I hear them all the time, it's so easy for me just to respond internally, which I like, this is so repetitive, and move on. But I'm feeling personally so challenged on this because regardless of the amount of times that people came to Jesus with needs, he connected with that person, he met that need. <coughs> Fortunately, he never responds to us with a, it's so repetitive. But carrying on, we continue to see Jesus loving the unclean. 
which is something we might have difficulty understanding, but in the context of the time, um, cleanliness was associated with purity, and so for those who were unclean, it was incredibly isolating. They had to remove themselves from social spaces, remove themselves from public spaces um, and sacred spaces, as well as managing the illness by themselves. Yet we see Jesus reaching out and he touched the leper and healed him. We see Jesus healing the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Now we hear these stories so often, and even in the Bible, they're only about four or five sentences long. But each of them is so significant. That woman was socially rejected and unwell for 12 years. How absolutely life-changing for her to be well and to be free to be a member of her community again. Or imagine how, it must, how long it must have been since that leper felt the touch of another. I like to sometimes consider the response the leper must have had. Uh, perhaps he was shocked by Jesus' touch. Perhaps he was scared, worried about the repercussions. Perhaps he was sad, thinking how he'd missed that connection with another person. Maybe he was joyful that one, all it took was one brief touch to make him feel human again. Either way, what an extravagant expression of love from Jesus wrapped up in such a small action. We also see Jesus loving not only the oppressed, but the oppressor. The bad guy, the ones responsible for other people's misfortune. Jesus loves the chaos, he loves the centurion. We see Jesus loving women, and Matt shared this with us a few weeks ago, but the Samaritan woman at the well is such an incredible example of radical, out-of-the-box love. We've already touched on the racial and the cultural barriers that it broke down, but it also broke down religious barriers and social barriers. Firstly, Jesus was connecting with the Samaritan who held quite different or muddled religious beliefs. Not only that, she'd already had five husbands. Then the man that she was currently with wasn't her husband. She was collecting water alone and at the wrong time of the day, which suggests something to us um, of her rejection socially. And lastly, she was a woman. Now, being a woman, again, might not sound of significance to us, but in the context of the Bible, a woman had pretty limited influence. She was quite limited to, the, to her family. I know at the time in Greece, women were literal possessions. If she was harmed, the man charged for the act was done so for damaged goods. But here, Jesus, and a religious leader at that, was speaking with her. And what I find quite funny is that Jesus' disciples returned to him at the well, and they confirmed for us how radical this was. In John 4, 27, it says the disciples marveled that he was talking with the woman. What I want us to consider on the back of this is that is who are the people that we would marvel at seeing another speak to? Perhaps the intimidating gang member, perhaps the drug addict, the criminal, the pedophile. And you're clearly seeing some of my heart revealed in these examples. But for some it might be the homeless, the person with different religious beliefs the schizophrenic, the refugee, the elderly. Every society will have individuals or groups that are forced to exist on the edge. Some of Jesus' examples remain relevant to us, while others are perhaps more specific to first century Israel. I just want to highlight that sometimes we can easily excuse ourselves from loving people groups based on this. For example, Jesus never addressed how to love anybody from their LBGTQI plus community. I don't know what to do, so I'll just keep neutral and I'll do nothing. Instead of focusing on the specifics and the details, I would encourage us to see the heart of Jesus for the marginalised. Jesus loved, 
He restored dignity, he restored honour, he built people up and he welcomed them into his whanau. We do not see Jesus taking time to weigh up if that sin is too far. He shows us that there is no sin unforgivable, no life unredeemable. I think sometimes the only difference between us and them is that our junk is private. Now, as I said earlier, I wrote this during the week. And then on Friday, a terrorist killed what has now become 50 innocent people and injured many more for no reason other than hate. And I just cannot comprehend that, and I certainly cannot comprehend how Jesus loved him and died for him, and I don't want to pretend that I have the answers for that. But in a time prior to being confronted with terrorism on our front door, I asked my connect group just during the week um, if there were people groups that we shouldn't be associating with. Their thinking was that in theory, no, but in practice, it's harder to live out. And now, no discredit to my lovely connect group, but fortunately, God is God and not us. Because the truth is that every single person in this room, every single person in our lives, every single person on this earth should be marginalised. They should be left in their sin. We fall short of God's goodness and His standard. We should absolutely 100% be on the outside of God's family. But Jesus, he loves us outside of the box. He loves us so radically and in such a way that could only be of God. Through an idea that is beyond human comprehension, that involved self-sacrifice to the extreme. Jesus loves us by dying on a cross. And there Jesus was dying for those who are not easy to love. We're not easy to love. You can ask Sam, I'm not always easy to love. And you can ask me and I can tell you that Sam's not always easy to love. <laughs> Nobody deserves the love of God, but it is him who chooses to come to us. Jesus did this for every single person on this earth. So I personally feel challenged that it is not for us to limit the magnitude and the sacrifice of Jesus to those who we deem to be worthy. God's love is for the unworthy, because we're all unworthy. 1 John 4.8 states that God is love. Genesis 1 states that we are made in his image. Therefore, our identity too is caught up in love. It's in our DNA, it's who we are. Not only that, but we are then instructed later by Jesus to love. John 13, 34 says, Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, what I loved was um, in my little study Bible, it had the footnote, and it said, Love, the distinguishing mark of Christ's followers. And I am so up for that. As Christians, we are to be known as love, not to be known as judges. Love is, God's, love is God's character in action, and it's what we're commissioned to do. It's what we're made of. Now, I'm not saying the journey or the act of loving is easy. It can be quite the opposite, in fact. The journey is one of self-sacrifice, of putting yourself aside for the needs of others. This journey is a choice, just as it was for Jesus, for example, the night before he was to die. It wasn't an easy choice. The Bible described how Jesus wrestled in prayer with God to the point where he sweat, had sweat like blood, but he chose to love us. The journey is one of effort. It requires going out of your way, just as Jesus did to meet the Samaritan woman. It requires being intentional and being spirit-led. But it's hard. I literally cried on and off the whole way up to New Plymouth last year as Sam, is up. Sam and I went to attend a conference on a marae. I was so nervous and I felt so out of my comfort zone. It required effort and it required courage. 
People say to Sam, my husband, that he's a natural with the language and anything Māori. And that can be encouraging for him, but it can also be frustrating as it's not natural. It's not something he can just do. He has a Māori last name, but his worldview and his thinking, his understanding of the Bible, was white. He simply recognised who God was putting on his heart. He works hard, he gives his time to learning, educating himself and practising, so that he is equipped to love well. And still he has huge fears of not understanding the language when spoken to, of not speaking well, of being judged for his appearance, not matching his name, of not knowing where to stand in situations where he's asked to identify as either Pākehā or Māori. Mother Teresa said that the success of love is in the loving, it is not in the results. I believe that love as a concept is not in itself love. Perhaps it's an emotion of love, but not the love that the Bible teaches us as Christians. To love somebody extravagantly and radically will require something from you. Over the last year or so, it's like God's given me some new lenses. And I'm becoming more and more aware that there are hurting people in this land, and I'm feeling increasingly burdened by some of the things that I'm seeing in my community. Now, I'm sorry, this part's probably going to make me cry, but I've got some examples here. I see my patients denying their illnesses due to stigma and fearing the loss of their community. I met a refugee family about two weeks ago, um, and they're okay. They're safe, they have most of their needs met, they're grateful to be here, but they seem sad, and it's not their home here yet, and every day is just seeming to be a struggle. There was a child born with significant health needs, who is now 18 months old and has never left the hospital since birth. That's the age of my Ellie Mae. And I just can't imagine her having never played outside or slept in her own bedroom or wrestled with her brother. There was another refugee man I visited who only sleeps two to three hours a night. He's scared to check his phone, like literally scared. It will take him hours to work up the courage to check a text message. As he fears it's bad news about his wife or his children, who he's left in a war-torn country and hasn't seen in eight years. He heard a bomb go off when speaking to his wife one evening, and he was in a state of panic as his son was outside at the time and couldn't be found. But he was found. This man is struggling, though, to learn English on two hours sleep a night, and he won't heat his home because he wants to save every single cent to send home to his family. Another story I heard from a colleague this week of a cancer patient that she cared for, a young dad with only about a week to live, sitting in hospital with his wife, writing birthday cards for his two toddlers until they turned 21. Last year, I was working with a young Māori pregnant girl, lost in the system between services, relying on her abusive boyfriend for housing, taken advantage of by all those around her, and visibly desperate for a stable adult in her life. She was so naive, yet so of the world, and the third generation in her family to have the almost exact same story. And then there's the obvious from this week, People now feeling unsafe in their communities. People grieving the loss of family and friends who died for no reason other than hate. There are people hurting, and I feel challenged to put my pride and my comfort aside to close the gap between them and me. I want to finish, very briefly, just by looking at a verse from Isaiah 56. This is the message version, but it's quite refreshing. It says, do what's right and do it in the right way, for salvation is just around the corner my setting things right is about to go into action. Make sure no outsider, or another translation is foreigner, 
who now follows God, ever has occasion to say, God put me in second class, I don't really belong. And make sure no physically mutilated person is ever made to think, I'm damaged goods, I don't really belong. For God says to the mutilated, I'll provide them an honoured place in my family and within my city, even more honoured than that as sons and daughters. And as for the outsiders, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. They'll be welcome to worship the same as the insiders. Oh yes, my house of worship will be known as a house of prayer for all people. The decree of the Master, God himself says, I will gather others also, gather them in with those already gathered. Now this verse is from a time when the Israelites were recognised as the people of God. But ultimately this verse shows us that those who the Israelites thought were excluded or who previously were excluded, God includes. And finishing up this morning, I don't want to say too much other than to provoke you as this is the part that requires an honest exchange between you and God. I want to ask, who are your outsiders? Who are your foreigners? Who are your physically mutilated, your rejected, and your needy? There is a wonderful quote, and for the life of me, I couldn't find it, but it said something along the lines of, the value of something is determined by the price paid for it, and heaven, or Jesus or God, paid the highest price. Jesus paid the highest price for me, he paid the highest price for you. He paid the highest price for every single person from every ethnicity, every culture, every gender, every age. And it's only because he loves us first that we can love. And so we work out of a response to his love. So I want to ask you, what are you going to do? Like literally, what are you going to do? It might be a little step. It might be a big step. But just as Jesus touched the leper, any action of any size is significant. The truth of Isaiah 56 makes it explicit to us that God's heart is for all people. So to close, I want to encourage you, who do you identify with in this verse? If you feel as though you're the outsider, the foreigner, the mutilated, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that we failed you. But know that God gathers you and includes you. There is no love, no joy, no kindness that can compare to that which you can receive from him. His only concern is that you love him. If you identify as being in the people of God, in the mainstream, perhaps you're feeling uh, cautious about our cultural journey, unsure if you should be accepting aspects of different cultures in our church context. If you're feeling fearful, perhaps, about genuinely loving all of our community, of what it might look like to have particular people groups among us, then I would lovingly encourage you to allow yourself to be stirred again for your first love and to bring this to God, to the one who gathers others, and to see what he says.